The Talking to Ourselves podcast is brought to you by our friends at The One Club, the world's leading nonprofit organization recognizing creative excellence in advertising and design. Coming to you from JSM Music, I'm Omid Farhang, Chief Creative Officer at Momentum, and I'm joined today by Chloe Gottlieb, Chief Creative Officer at RGA, where she guides hundreds of multidisciplinary teams in the creation of breakthrough products, services, and communications for global brands such as Nike and Samsung. In her previous role at RGA, Chloe built the largest experienced design team at any global agency, and she really epitomizes RGA's proprietary mashup of storytelling, design, and technology. Chloe was named one of the most creative people in advertising by Business Insider. She's been named a New York Times Digital Scholar. She has judged at and won most every major industry award. In 2008, Chloe helped create Nike ID, which is still up and running a decade later and remains one of the ultimate examples of how agencies can transform business models for the biggest brands on the planet. And beyond her legacy as a creative leader, she's a powerful voice for women in our industry at a pivotal time. This is Chloe Gottlieb and I talking to ourselves. If I were to ask your mother, what were some childhood behaviors that foretold your future in a creative vocation, what would she have told me? So I was always very strong-willed and very stubborn. I had clear ideas about how the world should be. And I think anyone who knew me as a child would say that um, I was very opinionated and maybe even bossy. Uh, But I actually remember I have early memories of early versions of creative briefs in my life um, in in elementary school, I was part of a team called Olympics of the Mind, and we were given briefs where we had to get a princess across a moat of alligators using a piece of string and a piece of wood, and we had 30 minutes, and we had to figure out the most you know, strategic way to use the materials, and our team actually ended up going to the national competition, and so I think from a very early age, I was drawn to both leadership and creativity. But I wasn't actually introduced to design until after college, which is interesting. The the discipline and craft of design wasn't part of my world. It wasn't part of my high school. I studied abroad and lived abroad, both in high school and college. It wasn't part of even the, the set of people I knew in college. And it wasn't until after college when I started working at Parsons School of Design that I was really exposed to exposed to design as a discipline and a craft. And as soon as I met designers and design professors and the design discipline, I immediately knew that I had found my people. And what I loved about design was that these were people that didn't see a glass as half empty or half full. They saw that they needed to design a new glass. And it was very much how I had kind of seen the world. I always had a very different view of things than people around me and I wanted to make things more beautiful and more simple and create better experiences for people. It is interesting with the design background and finding your your way and finding your people in the design community. It doesn't seem like it's a coincidence. I look at like, you know, Nick started out as a designer. Alex Bogusky started out as, as, as a designer. Um, I wonder what it is about having a design background versus having a traditional copywriting or art directing background may give you just a different way of approaching advertising or give you a little bit of a leg up that some of those other people don't have coming in to start. It's funny. I never intended to work 
in advertising. I just wanted to make great experiences for people. Um, and it's been an evolution. It's interesting that, uh, what, that there's actually a lot I can bring from design to the communications industry. And more and more, I think, the design. And, and my background, my craft, is a little bit different than Nick's because his background is in visual design. Mm. And my craft is actually called experience design. And so the experience designers, in a way, are the architects of products and services. So we really think about what is, who is the customer? What are their needs? How do you design simple, useful, engaging experiences around them? And I've actually ended up falling in love beyond that with all the forms of creativity in our industry because I know that we have to create things that are simple and useful, but also interesting and emotional. And so I've actually been working with a partner, a creative partner for 10 years, Taris Weiner, yeah. who's a writer and an art director. He's kind of a hybrid, but I love that combination and, and that tension that comes at the intersection of a a, a product thinker, a ser, you know, a service designer, product thinker matched with a great storyteller. And, and there's, there's a great um, there's a great tension and opportunity there to really look at experiences that both fit in and stand out for customers. Yeah, I definitely want to ask you about how you and your partner work together. Um, when did you begin at RGA, and what was your job title when you started there? So I've I've been at RGA a while. Um, you know, it's it's been years. Um, it's funny. I'm actually really proud of how long I've been there. I think. I think it's great to move around and have lots of different experiences. I've actually had a lot of different jobs at RGA. And I did, I started at RGA in, I think it was 2001, um, when the company was less than 100 people and in one small building, the Bauhaus building on 39th Street. And I'm really proud to be part of a team that has grown it into a global company with 22 offices and a couple thousand people. And, you know, be, we've become a full service agency. And um, I left for, for a while and actually went to Razorfish and then came back to RGA. And I started as a, it was called interaction designer at the time. So I started in the experience design department as an entry level designer. And the whole model <clears throat> that really we, we base our creativity on is two things. One are T-shaped creatives, meaning you spend years almost as an apprentice building up your craft, working with the best people that do what you do, and you hone your skills and you know work on hundreds of different problems and get advice and get critiqued and and it's you know years of building your craft, your discipline, and really owning your craft, and then. As a leader, as a creative director or an, ex or an executive creative director or a group executive creative director, you, ha you have to be more lateral. Yeah. You have to be able to um, direct across disciplines. So you have to know and stand in what you know is your craft and then be curious and open and respectful enough to then connect across all of the types of work. And so it's been great because I can still get in there and kind of sketch interfaces and question, you know, experience design. But as the co-CCO of RGA US, I, I also have to be able to give really pointed feedback about all the types of work we do. And we do yeah. everything now. Um, 
And so I've, my evolution there, I think, I think it's great when you can stay at a company and have lots of jobs or have lots of chapters. And I think every time I wonder, you know, have I, am I stagnating or, you know, do I need to try something new? There always seems to be some new opportunity that comes around the bend that just forces me to grow in new ways. And, and that, that's been great. It's it, the company has grown. I have grown as well with it. Yeah. Um, a lot of times when you stay at one company for a, a long duration of time, it can be difficult for senior management to ever not view you as that, as the person they first hired. Was it helpful to leave and come back um, just in terms of establishing, establishing yourself as a manager I think that when I left and came back, it gave me perspective. And also, whenever you go, any company is good at, you know, every company is good at different things. And so I think what I brought back from my time at Razorfish, I happened to have a great boss, Karen McGrain, who was very, very dedicated and uh, focused on doing ethnographic style research. So while I was there, we spent a lot of time out in the field learning from customers and talking to them. And we would get out of the office and go like, I remember we were doing a project for teen girls and we spent the whole summer studying their lockers and going into their bedrooms and interviewing them. And that was great because it reinforced this, you know, notion that we have to be always listening to people and remember that you know, we do our best work when we're really focused on who the customer is and what they need. So that was great. And I think leaving and coming back probably just accelerated the path that I was on in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably more than any other agency, you talked about how you've changed and you've grown and the agency has changed and grown. And that is not just lip service. RGA probably thinks more deeply about adapting structures and frameworks that break the traditional agency mold than any other agency. So it probably does feel like you've worked at five different places. Um, But I do wonder within a company that's so courageous about changing the model, especially not when things are bad, but when things are good, um, how difficult it can be sometimes to prototype new structures and new collaborations, given the fact that no assignment is a dress rehearsal and your clients Mm -hmm. have certain expectations of you guys. And I I would assume it must be really easy when there's a breach in the new um, attempt to try to revert back to the old way of doing things. Um, So you've seen a lot of iterations of the company. Is there just like, let's just be brave and know that if we have some road, you know, we we hit some bumps along the way, it's part of the process. I mean, I think part of what has made RGA helped us to grow is that we are we we don't shy away from disruption we actually we seek it out we just we are constantly disrupting our own model the people that work there are by nature questioning our you know our, ourselves and constantly wanting to do things differently or look at things in a new way we're not process driven we have clear principles about how we work and one of those principles is working at the intersection and working at the intersection means that we've, you know, consistently combined and recombined different disciplines to make great work. But the disciplines are constantly changing. And so I think people that are drawn to RGA and really thrive there are people that seek out minds that are different than theirs or opposite to theirs. They're not people that 
want to be comfortable and work with people that think like them. They actually look for that friction that comes from someone who has a very different perspective. So our job now as chief creative officers is how do you actually create enough of a framework or a model or an approach that doesn't feel like it stifles that, but actually organizes and reminds people to continue to bring people to the intersection, gives them enough of a of guidance so that things feel like they're consistent and they come from the same place, but still allows probably every team to be different and every piece of work to be unique. You talk about um, tension and friction and how they contribute to help making work better. Do you approach friction between creatives differently than you approach friction between say a creative and, a, and an account person or a creative and a strategist? I, I think that friction and tension can be really positive or really negative. There's almost two, I see it as two types of friction at work. One is, one is the good friction when people respect each other and they acknowledge that we're gonna get comfortable being uncomfortable, meaning I know my craft you're great at your craft and let's go and make great work. And there's going to be a lot of tough moments where we see things very differently and we're just going to hash it out and make the work better. The bad kind of friction is when, and this happens in every company, when people go into silos and get territorial or controlling and don't see the value of opening up and being humble about what they know and don't know and finding partners that can do things maybe better than them. And so what I'm constantly reminding myself and our team is be your be your own most honest critic. Like growth means knowing what you're great at and asking for help when you see your limitations and bringing in other people who are great at that thing that you don't do will make the work so much better. Everyone wins in the end. So as a leader and manager, there's almost a heat map at any time where you have to sense, okay, is this a good friction that's going to make innovation? Or is this a friction that's going to lead to teams going in circles or going backwards or just spending energy in the wrong places? Because the bad friction can actually be a huge energy suck. And sometimes you have to change teams. Like sometimes you just, and it happens with humans. It's like you just get people that can't work together or can't build that respect quick enough together. And and sometimes just switching them, you know, rotating them is the thing that needs to happen. But I usually really ask people to work it out or help them work it out. Yeah. When it comes to territoriality, it's um, it's such a powerful symbol that you operate um, in a co-CCO structure. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about your partner and about the Machiavellian power struggle that must ensue every day between you and him. Oh, so it's been, it's so interesting. So in, in the design world, we don't have these art director copy pairs. Right. And so it's, the partnership was was definitely a new, although we do partner obviously and work in pods with people. You have to, you have to work with pods of, you know, different disciplines. This kind of like work marriage is was kind of a new concept to me. But um, so Taris and I have a really healthy partnership because we're very honest with each other. We're constantly pushing each other and critiquing each other and 
there is that dis- there is that respect to say I respectfully disagree with you and over time I think he's become really a lot stronger at critiquing product and service work mm-hmm. and I've become much stronger at critiquing aver- you know tr- more traditional advertising ads content um, narratives and that's only because we've learned from each other I mean it's a 10-year creative partnership is is a really amazing thing. Um, and he's just really funny. He makes me laugh a lot and that's great. I think he reminds me too. And I try, I try to share this as much as I can. Our, our jobs are, you know, making, being creative under pressure. Yeah. It's, it's not easy. And I, I look at this career as a marathon, not a sprint. And so having a partner that, can give you perspective when things get hard and tell you what's important in life and that this too shall pass and that we'll figure it out is a blessing. And so I'm really appreciative of that. Um, But we're also very strong. So on our own. So what's great is we work together on things. There's also times where we divide and conquer and are able to, you know, handle things if someone isn't around. And that's a good feeling as well. But the partnership is unique because usually in the advertising industry, it's a copywriter and an art director pair. To have a experienced designer match together with a art director slash writer is, is unique. And it's actually part of another part of our model, which is this balance of um, story or communications match with product and service disciplines coming together to make a connected idea or, you know, help build connected brands. And what's interesting about where RGA sits right now is even when I look at the competitive landscape, we have to be the best at each thing we do. Like we're going up and competing against the best advertising and narrative shops. We're going up and competing against the best product and service shops. And so we're asking a lot of ourselves. We're very ambitious because we want to be the absolute best at each thing, but then we can't just compete. We have to differentiate by combining those things and bringing them together. And more and more, the brands that we work with need so many different problems solved that we're so thankful that we have this deep bench of talent that goes across anything they might ask, whether it's from a brand purpose, brand foundation, brand identity, building a product, looking at the business, what should they do? What should they say? What's the content they have to make? Where do they live in social? How do they, you know, use data to form a clearer picture of their customer? How do they create a new business model? How, like, it's Ooh, just, This list is making me sweaty. I know. It's like the, <laughs> the amount of things that we're asked to do as a strategic partner to brands keeps growing. And so it's, it's really exciting and it's really hard. How do we keep making sure that our craft in each specific, each specific thing is deep and amazing? And then how do we make sure that we can bring all these things together when we need to? Yeah. And not all clients ask for all that. Some clients or brands just come and ask for one thing. They'll just ask for a TV ad or they'll ask for a mobile app or an e-commerce site. They they come through many different um, requests and, and kind of things that they need solving. And so um, 
it's it's always new. It's always it's always an interesting. And so one of the the funny things, the title chief creative officer, in a way, I, I think I'm more of a chief curation officer or a chief connections officer because a lot of what we do is we're very thoughtful about okay, what's the shape of this problem? Who is the best? Who are the best disciplines to bring together at the intersection? And how do we combine, you know, this skill with that skill, a creative technologist with an art director, with a data scientist, with a, a writer, go, you know? Um, and how do they all find that foundation where they can respectfully kind of work together and also disagree to make innovative work? Yeah, and well, and given, given the diversity of work, it puts a rare pressure on you to go from one meeting where you might be looking at something quite traditional to the next meeting where you might be looking at something that's, you know, leveraging a technology that's never yeah. been used before. Um, and neither of those are an excuse for you not to send the people in the room out with answers to at least know what to do next, if yeah. not to know what to do, you know, um, in the, in the lead up to a meeting. Um, and that comes back to your creative taste. When you pinpoint an idea that you love, can you sort of explain what happens to you in that sure. moment, sort of emotionally or, yeah. or physiologically? Are you are you guarded with your enthusiasm? <laughs> Do you feel an obligation to express your enthusiasm? So we we spend two days a week, Terrace and I, critiquing work. So Wednesdays and Thursdays are work reviews. Critique doesn't work where the work is too baked. Like if it's too far along, there's not always a lot you can do. If it's too early, so it's about where do you strike that right moment where critique can really help. So anyone that goes through these critiques on Wednesdays and Thursdays will tell you that they absolutely know when I love an idea because I get very excited. <laughs> and so my favorite part of this job and working in this industry, this creative industry is <laughs> it's a hard, you know, it's harder and harder to make great work just because of the complexity of the ecosystems of partners and media and brands and agencies and all of these things. But those moments where creative sparks come through are magic. And so despite all of the hard parts, it's like those moments where an idea comes to life, it makes it all worth it. And I am someone who feels I the big ideas in my bones. I literally I get goosebumps. I feel I feel the magic physically. Yeah. There's really no other way to describe it and it doesn't always happen. But it happens often enough um we have an amazing creative team and and not just a creative team, a te technology design team, a strategy team. And when they when they bring those ideas it's really exciting. Um but even a great idea can die in execution. And so it's not, we, we actually have a system of highlighted work, meaning this is, we, we know this is the spark of something big, but let's all agree that we're going to protect this idea because it's a living thing and make sure that we bring this idea from a concept into the world with the same amount of like love and attention and craft and design yeah that it actually gets better over time. So by the time people, customers, or you know, just people get to experience it, it's even stronger than that, what we saw in the first review. Now, I love hearing you say that. I feel like enthusiasm and the expression of enthusiasm from senior creative people 
is such an important part of the job, especially like it takes such a leap of faith to read a paragraph in a Word document or in a PDF um, and to say, this could be really special. This could be really magic. Look at some of the most awarded pieces of work of the last decade. Like, you know, I personally, I saw Fearless Girl in a PDF and I'm ashamed to say I saw that and was like, well, that's probably never going to work. <laughs> you know, like it, 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 it takes like a huge leap of faith and it takes a lot of courage and it's really easy to say what sucks or why a thing won't work. And so when you're with a room of creatives, you don't have to say, you know, I'm Chloe, I'm the CCO. I've won every award that you guys hope to win in your careers. I've been here helping grow and shepherd this company into being one of the great creative powerhouses. When you say, I love that, they go, if she loves that, like, let's work on it really hard because we believe her, you know? They, they, um, they know, like our creatives are so good. They know when they, they know when I'm going to get excited. They will come and say, we have something to show you. You're going to be so excited. And they know when they have the magic. I think, I think ideas are living things. Um, there's this great book by Elizabeth Gilbert called Big Magic. And she talks a lot about ideas being living things that, we have to kind of be as creators and creatives, we have to be containers or vessels for creativity, meaning like we have to be open, we have to be listening and we have to know when these ideas strike. And the funny thing about these reviews, and this just happened actually this week is sometimes the big ideas are hidden in small things or small ideas. So a team took was going through, um, I don't know, maybe 50 ideas. And there was one, one moment, like one slide with an idea buried. It wasn't even the big idea. It was like an execution off of a, off of a theme that they were exploring. And as soon as I saw it, I said, hey, stop, wait. This is actually the, this is the magical part. Let's really explore this. Let's unpack this and make this bigger. And so sometimes they know and sometimes they'll hit on things without knowing like our job as lead creatives or creative directors at any level is to help teams find and focus and uncover, unlock the big ideas in a hundred ideas. Sometimes you have to do that or to support and get excited about a big idea when they bring it. Or sometimes the hard part is to say, you know what, this isn't, this work doesn't make me feel anything. And if we don't feel anything, there's a good chance that customers won't feel anything. And the only way work is going to get velocity today is if we're saying something true that resonates, that make is something people would want to say about themselves or share with their friends. And so if we don't get and we're not always this, you know, the audience, but if, if it's a pretty good litmus test, like if we don't feel anything, how is the brand going to, the client going to feel anything? Or how is even a customer going to feel anything? Right. You can't be boring today. You can't, you can't really do mediocre work today and expect it to perform. Like it has to be something that moves and it has to move because people love it. And usually people will share it if it feels exciting to them. And so if you don't start from an interesting place, it's really hard to end up in an interesting place. Drafting off that idea of ideas as living things, you guys not only create great ideas for clients, you create ideas about how to reshape the future of your own company. 
And a lot of agencies add departments and capabilities, not out of necessity, but a lot of times, sometimes just out of novelty to show clients how cutting edge they are, you know, while this new venture exists in name only. Um, that hasn't been true of RGA. Um, there's the RGA Accelerator Program. There are many examples of initiatives created by the company um, that required a tremendous amount of follow-through in the face of them being kind of the easiest thing, I would imagine, to set aside when mm-hmm. the, the the rigors of or the pressures of clients start to intensify. I wonder just if you could talk a little bit about the importance of follow-through. Yeah, I think why creatives need great business partners is we often have great ideas and you know great business partners definitely help operationalize those ideas and those visions and so RJ's been always a very it has always had a strong production and business and you know account side as well as a strong making so it's like great making culture we have strong creative and strategy and technology but it's balanced by really strong business and kind of operations and the people the dna is very much if you had to pinpoint qualities that make people attracted to the company and who who work there i mentioned disruption already um i i think entrepreneurs and a, a sense of entrepreneurship is very present and a sense of looking at the dots of what's happening and change in the industry and then connecting them to make something new and doing that slightly ahead of the curve. A lot of that comes from Bob. I think he talks a lot about pattern recognition and we've reinvented the model you know, several times. It used to be every nine years, now it's much faster. So I think it's just this constant looking at the patterns that are happening and instead of running away or trying to keep your model the same, understanding that you have to disrupt yourself before you get disrupted. Yeah, it's a nice thing to say, let's create the company that would put us out of business, but in action to actually hire the people who are in the infant stages, unbeknownst to them, of putting you out of business. (laughs) Um, To that end, you wrote uh, an op-ed in Adweek where you talked about the fourth industrial revolution, platform technologies, machine learning and AI, um, smart voice assistance, AR, VR. And you said, eventually these sharp tools will make current marketing seem as dull as a flint axe. First of all, it's a super badass quote. Congratulations. Um, In order to harness these new technologies, you need to be a student of them. Is being a student of them, does that come naturally to you or is that something that you need to sort of teach yourself how to do? I've always been very excited by disruptive technologies. I think it's where I get most excited in my in in it, within the creative space. Ideas that incorporate technology or hack media platforms are very interesting to me. Um, I, I, I don't actually remember that quote specifically saying it, but I, I, I don't disagree with that. I think... You know, looking at the probably the biggest disruption coming will be through intelligence that comes from machines and algorithms. Um, I think there's a desire from brands to really be able to measure the creativity, but still want the magic. And so I don't see it as an either or. I think that 
I don't think that we will be replaced by machines or robots or AI. I see them as a way to supercharge our growth for us to get smarter and for us to kind of have the ability to um, connect dots and things that we haven't been able to before. But the changes that are coming, both from companies that are technology and data-based in our industry and these algorithms and AI, you know, platforms themselves, I think we're not, many people are kind of in denial about how big the changes are going to be. Although there are a lot, I have to say, a lot of companies and agencies are really investing in intelligence and data and making sure that, you know, they have really smart people thinking about these things. Yeah. Um, If the expectation from some of your clients towards RGA is groundbreaking technology, um, can it sometimes be difficult to coach creative teams against technology that's sort of posing as an idea? Is that ever a sort of challenge when you do your work reviews? So I think we... We believe that a great idea can come from anywhere. And so we believe that a great idea can come from a technologist or a writer or a data scientist, et cetera, um, strategist. I I think that in the past that might have been a critique of RGA. Maybe we were too focused or in love with the technology. But at this point, we've gone through an evolution over time of hiring. At first, we didn't, the first version of our you know, storytelling and narrative work probably wasn't the best in the industry. But over time, we've hired some of the best narrative thinkers and makers in the industry. And I feel like our our team right now, they are so talented uh, that we, we aren't really in danger of being very um, feature focused because we're constantly able to come back to, OK, what does this brand stand for? And then how does that connect to what the brand both says and does? at a more strategic level and and having great strategic partners really helps. So we are in many ways encouraging and reinforcing a strategy and creative combination and collaboration whenever we can. But I think maybe in the past that would have been a fair assumption, but we've evolved a lot and people don't always know us as like the strongest I think they know us for a lot of different things, but there's times when we're we're not doing any technology work. We're literally just doing, you know, ads for our clients, which is interesting. That being said, I don't think clients come to us to do ads and content in a traditional way. So even when clients and brands are coming to RGA to work on content or, you know, video, narrative work, marketing work. They're still looking for that layer of systematic thinking, which is where does this idea live? How is it distributed? How do we use data to make it really smart? How do we measure it? So again, it's that story and system tension, even within marketing work to say, what's how is this work going to make me feel? And how what is it actually going to do? And bringing those things together. And, and our most awarded work in the com- communications and advertising space has been when we bring the creative technologists into the intersection with design and storytelling to make things that are great pieces of content, but also have a kind of hack in them of technology or, or kind of looking at platforms in new ways. Yeah. Um, in terms of your own personal management style, 
do you worry about being too hard on people or not hard enough on people? Such a good question. I think I've, I think that, um, I worry about not being hard enough on people. I feel like the people who I admired most, who were my mentors, Mm. were way harder on me than comes naturally to me to be on the people I work with. I think that I'm, I can be very, the thing that I've been working on is I've been hardest on myself. And so the, you know, being a creative leader has been an evolution of learning to go easier on yourself because we can be our own worst critics, right? In terms of of managing the team, I think the art to this is removing the personal emotion from the critique and really focusing on how you get to great work. And when you do that, when it's not about me or the person and it's just about how do we make the work better, it almost doesn't matter like it can be hard or not. It's just it becomes something bigger than the than the two of you. Um, but it's it's not easy. I think it's more about being transparent. Like if you have an issue with the work, you have to share it. Yeah. It doesn't help anyone to just let things be non-confrontational, right? Because it just doesn't make the work better. And so I try to be very open when when I think I have something to say that can help the work be better. I don't know if people, it's a really good question. I don't know if the team would say I'm hard or not. On them, I think they would probably say it really depends on how good the work is. (laughs) Well, and, and a big part of our job is failure. You know, even the best creative agencies, including RGA, won't win every pitch. Yeah. Work that you believe in deeply will die. Um, and this is these are just some of the occupational hazards of the job. What, as you talk about being hard on yourself and realizing the importance of um, being nicer to yourself or lightening up on yourself, what is your relationship with failure? How has that changed over the last couple of years? It's really interesting. I have two daughters. They're um, Lila and Stella. They're age five and ten. And I want them to have a different perspective than I did. And what I mean by that is a lot of girls starting in, you know, puberty at a pretty young age start to really doubt themselves. I don't know why that happens. Um, And it can take up a lot of energy in your life if you have this constant critic on your shoulder wondering, you know, is that idea good enough? Did I give that feedback well? Am I being a good boss? Am I being a terrible boss? You know, I lost that pitch. I won that, you know, it's just endless. And so it's taken me a lot of work. I mean, I'm not talking about work at RGA. I'm talking about spiritual hard work. Yeah. To get to a place where I can quiet that critic and just be in the work and spend energy on the team and the work versus debating in my head about how I'm doing yeah. <laughs> as a leader. And so I want part of my mission and what I want 
to give not just women, all creatives, anyone who wants to listen is like, here are some tips outside of the work. Here are some tips to like manage the pressure and stress and strain of what this does over time to do work like this under pressure every day. Yeah. Um, in a way we're like athletes and we're running a marathon and people forget that. And so a big part of my toolkit outside of work, if you want to know, is like, I do so much work to stay centered. I meditate every day. I'm, I'm a total like life hacker. I'm constantly looking at ways to optimize nutrition. I'm constantly signing up for, you know, half marathons, races, even though I hate running, I try to do yoga as much as I can. Um, I, I don't drink a lot. I don't smoke cigarettes. I, I mean, it sounds boring. I'm, I, it's not that I live like a monk, but I've realized that in order to maintain the expectations that I have of myself to do the work that I want to do in the world and not to get so burnt out as a working mom and leader and, and dealing with all the stress I can only be happy and feel great if I'm really taking care of myself. And I don't think we talk enough about this as a industry. A lot of people get very burnt out and are afraid to even talk about that. Um, And I hope, I, I haven't even talked about this a lot at RGA or with my team, but one of the things I would like to, and maybe through this podcast is my kind of opening up of this, is if people are interested, I'm really happy to share any tips that I have that have helped me. The biggest transformative life hack that I've done is starting a gratitude journal. So it's a five-minute journal. There's a quick template, and I do it every morning and every night. And it's very simple. It just says, what do you want to achieve today? What are you grateful for in the morning? And then at night, it's like, what 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 was great today and what could i have done better right and what so just every day what am i grateful for to start your day with that attitude of god you know things are hard there's a lot wrong but what 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 where's the beauty and then what are the th- three most important not not urgent because you could fill your day with email and fires and problems but what are the important things I need to do today? And then at the end of the day, okay, great. What, what was great today? And what could I have done better? So there's always this, this cycle of gratitude, checking in. Okay, this was amazing. I actually really messed up here. Let me learn from this. Move on. The ability to move on and be resilient is probably one of the most important qualities for any leader because, you know, it's hard. It's hard. It's You get thrown a lot of different situations and problems, and you need to live from the inside out and be able to find the centeredness and resolve to pick yourself up after you've lost a pitch or maybe, you know, launch something that did or didn't, you know, win an award and all, all these things that kind of we place importance on. Sometimes they're going to be amazing and sometimes they're not. Yeah. And nobody can give that to you. And I've learned that. And that's the thing that I want to give to young girls and, and creatives everywhere is like, how do you live from the inside out and be your own champion and critic and not 
base your sense of self and worth on what others say or what awards say or what, you know, the pitch says and just know what you're good at and what, where you have to learn. And that is, those are the things that I think help me kind of stick with this. Yeah. It's incredible to hear you say that. I think when you start in this business, you tend to work on one or two things. And if the one or two things are going well, you feel good. And if the one or two things aren't going so well, you feel not so good. Then you become a CCO or you become an ECD and you're overseeing a lot of different things. And at any given time, there's a couple things that are going really, really well. And there's a couple things that are Mm -hmm. a dumpster fire. Um, And to learn how to sort of navigate your day and toggle your emotions properly to not tie up all of your self 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 worth and whether something is going great or something is going not so great. Like I think it's a powerful revelation, especially in management, but actually you're right. It's sort of, it, it transcends any sort of vocation of like just how to make the voice in your head nicer to yourself. I think there's a misconception that um, if you're not beating yourself up, you don't care enough. Knowing that there's the inner work and the outer work and they both work together is really what I've learned is like there's the work we do at work and the work we make and hopefully it's amazing. But to to have a career in creativity requires a lot of inner work that's just as hard. Yeah. And it's cumulative. Like my my meditation practice, you know, and I've been on and off the mat for years. I think right now I'm committed to, I'm on a streak right now to, it's not 30 minutes or 40 minutes. Literally, I'm just meditating 10 minutes a day with a couple friends. We check in every day and make sure, you know, it's like a little group. Just, did you do it or not? So it's there's some accountability there. But the cumulative effect of these hacks or these practices are enormous. So you might not feel it right away. But after years of doing it, you build up this reserve of peace and perspective and strength that is invaluable. You talked about um, the importance of espousing some of these values or these virtues that are important to you, to the industry in general, but to women in particular. At the beginning of your career, I'm going to assume you couldn't worry about gender inequality for all women because you had to worry about one woman. You had to worry about Chloe. Do you remember sort of a turning, if that's true, do you remember sort of a turning point in your career where you realized um, just the obligation to use your hiring power to improve diversity? Um, and, And maybe you started to see women around you looking at you as a mentor in a way that you didn't realize that you had been inviting it's funny. I think I was so so focused on the work and my craft and just learning that I didn't think a lot about gender for a long time. I had a great mentor in Nick Law who probably put me in situations that I wasn't, at least I didn't think I was ready for or even prepared for. And he definitely saw that there was potential that I could realize that I didn't even know yet. And so he's been amazing like that and such a great teacher. Um, and so what's interesting is everyone can mentor each other. Like it wasn't in my career, it wasn't a woman that put me in those positions. It was a man. It's important for men to realize as well that 
everyone, we all have a role in helping everyone realize potential. And there's so much talk now about, you know, gender inequality and we're still, it's, you know, it's a long road. I was very excited to see when, I think when Terrace and I were promoted to, um, heads of create ECDs of New York and then the U S we were really excited to feel like we did have the ability to bring in not just diverse skills, but diverse people into our team. And one of the first really emotionally uh, impactful and powerful hires that we made was um, AJ Hassan who had done all the like a girl work at Leo Burnett. And she came over to be a co-ECD with her partner, Matt Marcus, at in our Chicago office. And I remember feeling really emotional, like, wow, we can actually make space for an amazingly diverse and talented group of people. And that being said, as a leader, diversity means diversity of skills, diversity of people and backgrounds. It also means, you know, being inclusive and and creating environments where people feel comfortable. And so what's great about RGA is we've always had this DNA of working at the intersection and respecting different perspectives. But we, like every company, have, I think, a long way to go to get to not just a diversity of skills, but diversity of people represented at every level of our company. We're still working on it and it's important to to me and to a lot of the the leadership there um and i it's it's not something i set out to be a role model or an example but i what i have been told by women is more that seeing me seeing a working mom kind of managing or juggling this role and kids is what's been inspiring to them because they didn't think that in this industry it was possible to be a really present parent or mother and also, you know, have a huge responsibility as a boss or a a manager. And so I don't think I've solved it. It's really hard and I'm still trying to figure it out, but I'm somehow showing people that, you know, you don't have to choose. You can, you can do both. What um, what advice do you give to a smart, driven female college student who wants to be a creative at an agency? Or what advice do you tell her to ignore? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to know your craft, your content. Like, you can't... The fastest way to accelerate your career is just to do great work and not be quiet about it. Right. Do great work know what you're talking about and let other people know that you know what you're talking about is what I would tell her and spend energy on the work, not energy beating yourself up. Just save yourself the like, you know, years of critique and energy that I kind of went through. How do you know when something is done? Are you a a tinkerer to your benefit or to your detriment? Mm. There's this great, well, I think chefs, so chefs are very creative, obviously. They are brilliant in the expression of, you know, cuisine. But they're, they have to deliver on time, meaning there's a room full of people waiting to eat and it just can't take forever. And so I think I keep that in mind as 
how much energy and effort can you put in to make something as great as it can be? And then when do you know to draw a line after which it's just diminishing returns? Like any more you do will not necessarily make it better. It's just going to drive yourself and people crazy. And that it's always a balance. It's a, you know, to make great work, you kind of have to give it your all. You can't do it half-ass. You have to give it time and attention and a lot of, a lot of hours. Um, but you also have to pick your battles. Like there's just parts of things that won't matter as much in the end. And I, and that's great leadership is helping a team decide where to spend their time and energy and not asking them to spend time and energy on things that won't impact a business or a brand or customers in the end. Since you've become CCO, is there any, anything that you've become better at saying no to? Hmm. I think that part of uh, being a leader is probably saying no more than you say yes. And what that means is working on what's important versus what's urgent. Obviously you have to put out fires every Mm. day, but carving out time, like putting time in your calendar to going back to like what's important to do today, starting every day with intention and knowing these are the things, no matter what happens today. And it always, you know, things always pop up. I will feel great if I did X or Y or Z and just being very clear with yourself. It won't happen every day, but if it happens nine days out of 10, having the satisfaction of knowing that you kind of, you tackled what's important. I think time is the most valuable resource any of us have and our, you know, our jobs require so much um, problem solving and it's easy to, to just, spend the day in meetings or answering emails or not kind of looking at the big picture. And so putting things on the calendar or not moving them like a meeting with a team where, you know, you have to present or share a point of view or something that's important. Those moments are important. Right. Um, In terms of that, going back to your gratitude journal, do you try to limit how much, um, work responsibility shows up in that journal or, or do you just kind of go with what comes it's a to really your mind and your heart? Yeah. So I actually have, I told you I have a lot of hacks. So I have a gratitude journal and a productivity planner. Woo. <laughs> my gratitude. And the 25th hour of the day. My gratitude journal is more about, um, it could be work or, you know, family or just life things that, yeah are important that day or just intentions for the day. My productivity planner is the first thing I do in the morning at work. And that is literally at work today. What is, what is the order of things I need to accomplish to feel like I had a good day? Number one, two, three. And if I get to them, what is four and five and how much time will each thing take? And then blocking out that time. So I have two different, and mind you, I've tried every app under the sun. None of them have worked for me. I've gone back to paper and pen. Right. So both the gratitude journal and the productivity planner are written down 
every morning. Isn't there just the an of intimacy the of the feel of a pen or yeah. pencil touching paper that cannot be recreated in there, an app? They say that there's a connection between writing something physically on a piece of paper that you absorb it and keep it, retain it more than just typing it into a phone. Okay. In a presentation of your work to a client at any point in your career, what is the most horrifying response you've ever received to an idea that you've presented? I I think the most horrifying response to work is blank faces and no feedback. <laughs> where it's just you just know that someone somewhere along the line didn't even get the shape of the problem right. Like you just right. you and the team have gone on a path that started from the wrong place and you got to a very different place than the the company is and I you know it thankfully doesn't happen often but it's not it's probably the worst response is just no response yeah and when it happens in a pitch as you're walking out you kind of go like we're never going to see each other again are we it's it's like and, and maybe that's for the best um and the final question I end every conversation with this question is the one that got away what is your favorite idea from any point in your career that just for whatever weird reason could never get made, but it's just, it, it has, it has a space in your heart and your soul that will, that will never leave. Oh man. That's interesting. Um, the one that got away. So there's an idea. It's not necessarily one that got away, but it's an idea that it's funny, actually, because if I tell it, I don't want someone else to make it. But maybe if I tell it, there'll be a brand out there that will help. (laughs) So I think that um, going back to young girls, I think that entering puberty and menstruation should actually be a time that's celebrated and really exciting and actually is quite feels the opposite, at least in my experience. Like it feels like something you're kind of ashamed of and it's, you're, it's, you're at such an awkward time of your life. And so AJ and team at Leo, they did great work around like a girl more in the, you know, communication storytelling space. But I actually think that there's a need for a service or an app that helps young girls when they start getting their periods, get really excited um, and celebrate that time and gives them through data a way to understand what's happening through their bodies to track their periods and have fun with it. And so I'm always looking at ways, you know, how do you actually take something that seems painful and make it easy or fun for someone? Um, So that's one, one thing that, I would love to find a partner, a company to work on. The other thing is I'm really interested. I talked a little bit about nutrition. I think nutrition, I've been doing a lot of research. It's so interesting. People are trying so many different nutritional programs, but they're not necessarily the best nutritional approach for their body. So I'm really interested in how technology is advancing to allow us to understand And this could be through DNA sampling or even sensors on our phone that test how our body's reacting to food. Like what is my body's needs and how do you then create meal kits or prepared meals for Mm. that's personal, like personalized nutrition. And now that you've gotten me going, I'm going through my list of like ideas that 
um, I'm try I'm tr- you know kind of incubating. There's another one which is around how painful it all starts with customer pain points, how painful it is to make lunch for kids as a mom, as a working mom, and even dads, it's like picky eaters, the monotony of it, trying to get them to eat. And I I do have an idea for how to make a modular meal kit slash digital service. It's kind of a product and a service that would make meals, like lunchtime fun for kids and parents to make. Yeah. So those are the three things, like fixing painful period experiences, fixing nutrition and fixing lunchtime that are kind of the ideas that I think I've talked to, but maybe not at the right time or maybe clients weren't ready yet. So if anyone wants to help me with those, just let us know. Well, Chloe Gottlieb, I will put this conversation in my gratitude journal. Thank you, Amid. Thank you. It was nice to chat with you today. Likewise. Thanks. Cheers. All right. Thank you to Chloe. Thank you to JSM Music. Thank you to The One Club. If you're digging the pod, please subscribe and tell a friend. All right. Talk again soon. Peace.